This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're listening to the Animation Addicts podcast with the Rotoscopers, episode 48. Interview with Steve Hickner. Welcome to the Animation Addicts podcast with the Rotoscopers. Disney, DreamWorks, Pixar, Don Bluth, Leica, Studio Ghibli, Ardman, and everything in between. I'm your host, Mason Smith, your main antagonist for this evening. And I'm here with uh, the awesome Morgan Straddling. Say, say hello. Hello, hello. Chelsea, unfortunately, is absent... For this episode, she will be missed, but she'll be back soon, folks. <laughs> so, for those of you who are new to the show, we are an animation podcast that talks about anything and everything animation, whether it's news, reviews, and in this case, interviews. So, today we had the opportunity to speak with Steve Hickner, who actually is the the author of a new book called Animating Your Career. It's basically a guide for anyone who's in animation and how basically a guide for anyone who's already in animation and how to progress your your career over you know a, so it lasts and so it grows and doesn't just sort of fizzle away steve has been in the industry over 30 years and he's done basically every job in the industry and worked for nearly all the studios he's notably the director one of the directors of the prince of egypt and most recently b movie yeah he um he's done everything from shooting pencil tests to uh you know co-producing uh, animated films and so we're super excited to have him on uh, because of his decades of experience and about his awesome enthusiasm uh, for animation we're super glad to have him on yeah so get ready guys this is a really fun interview steve is like like mason said full of enthusiasm and really it's just like talking to a friend he's and i think that's why he's the perfect person to have written this book because he's just sharing knowledge from one person to the other and he genuinely wants everyone who reads his book to read it, take the principles, absorb it, apply them, and succeed. So, on to the interview. What is it that lets someone build career longevity? How do you get into a business you love and stay there? My book, Animating Your Career, will help you discover these answers. All right, so today for our interview, we have the honor of interviewing Steve Hickner. He is the writer of the book Animating Your Career, which just came out in August. It's basically a guidebook and how to to guide and navigate your career in the animation industry or, or basically just a creative industry. And he has quite a resume. He's worked anywhere from Disney to Amblination and now works at DreamWorks, where he was a director on B-Movie and also The Prince of Egypt and also been a producer and has done 
lots of things on at the studio. So welcome, Steve. It's great to be here. All right, all right. And I, I just want to add in in the uh, foreword of his book, uh, which was written by Don Hahn, uh, he calls Steve a pro's pro and uh, one of the few people who has done nearly everyone's job in the world of animation, including directing uh, some of the brightest and best animated features out there. And so we're super, super excited to have you on, Steve. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> all right, all right. Now, um, like Morgan said, uh, Steve is the author of the uh, the recent Animating uh, Your Career, brand new book. And uh, first of all, we want to thank you for sending us copies uh, to review. Uh, I recently finished it in the library today in between classes. <laughs> and I just want to thank you for sending it out to us and thinking of us and, and reaching out to us. I really enjoyed the book. I'll, I'll go ahead and, and start with my, my first thoughts on the book. I thought it was deeply uh, personable. I felt like I was having a, a personal conversation with you, Steve, through the book. And it, it's a super easy, super informative, and very uplifting read. I, I felt I felt more confident <laughs> about my future in animation having read this book. And so uh, I just want to thank you for your work. And um, and again, thanks for uh, sending us copies to review. Yeah, well, thanks for your uh, kind words. You're, you're very nice. But I, I tried to write the book that I wished I had when I got in the business. And then all that, that would be like the first part of the book, because it's really broken into two parts. And the second half of the book, I wanted to write the book that I wish had been there when I moved from an artist into managing and supervising people. There's nothing out there for how to manage a creative team. Yeah, yeah. you sent it to, to both of us and, you know, I'm obviously not an artist but as I was reading it, I was probably just as engaged as Mason and I felt you know, I saw direct parallels to my own career, my own job um, so even though you're not an artist, I still recommend this book to anyone because it's very, yeah, like Mason said, personable, relatable um, it could apply to any job and also the stories that go along with it really kind of hit it home. And then I also liked that it was kind of like a mini biography about you. Like, I, I, I understand you as a director and as a person and where you've been and what you've learned and the ups and the downs in a more personal way than just, you know, reading it on Wikipedia or, or whatnot. So I thought that was really, really exciting. Yeah, I think one of the main things I wanted to get in the book is the fact that I would be nowhere without the support of other people. Mm-hmm. And that would be something I would say to anybody starting a career or in their career. You're going to be dependent upon other people. And that's the good, that's the good news because it makes it more fun. But at every point in my career, every break I got, every every wonderful opportunity was because someone took a chance with me. Takes only one person to say yes, right? Yeah, that was... Uh, <laughs> and and I genuinely believe that to be true because I have a... I still have it, an envelope, a, a sheaf of uh, rejections from all these places when I try to get in the business. But as I say in the book, you only need one yes. The great thing about what we do is if I were a baseball player and I went 0 for 99, I would never make it to the major league. I'd be done if I finally went one for a hundred. But in our world, you can go 0 for 99 and get the one break and essentially go one for a hundred, but that's the one that changes your world and you're on your way. That's all that matters is the one yes. Okay, Steve, before we kind of get deep into your book, I, I accidentally skipped over a section that we wanted to do. When okay. we do when we do interviews, uh, we do kind of an icebreaking fun thing. It's called Catch and Fire. The phrase is from uh, The Swan Princess. <laughs> All it is is kind of a rapid fire kind of questions to get to know you questions. All you need to do is uh, give us the first answer that comes to your head. It's supposed to be kind of quick and kind of kind of gunslinging questions. And so, uh, yeah, we got about got about 12 questions. And it's just kind of a fun way to break the ice for our listeners so they can kind of uh, get to know you a little better. All right. All right. So we're going to start catching fire. First animated movie you remember seeing? I would say the one that's most vivid is, does Mary Poppins count? Totally but counts. One of my favorite movies of all time. I, I 
absolutely love it, and I, I can't wait to see Saving Mr. Banks. Now, favorite cartoon growing up? You know, it's weird, but I, I love Beanie and Cecil and Top Cat. Those would be my tied for first. That's crazy about that, and also Johnny Quest, but I would say uh, Beanie and Cecil and Top Cat. All right, favorite animated movie? Of all time? Of all time. I, I, uh, favorite animated movie slash project that you worked on? I would say that's a tie between Roger Rabbit and B-Movie. Roger Rabbit because I, I got to move in, to London and live in England for the first time, and it was an actual benchmark movie. And B-Movie because I don't think I ever laughed so much in my life during the three and a half years we made that movie. <laughs> I hated it to end. <laughs> now, favorite animator slash artist? Let's see. Boy, I really like uh, Bob Lampett because he did Beanie and Cecil. And I really like Duck Jones, so it would be one of those two. I love the um, the more cartoony animation. I love the Warner Brothers stuff because it's uh, irreverent. And <laughs> so I Bob Clampett and Chuck Jones. Excellent. Uh, do you prefer classic hand-drawn animation or CG? I have a sweet spot always for 2D because that's how I started. But right now, I'm really thrilled to be working in 3D because I spent 20 years of my career working in 2D. So this is like something new to work in CGI. So I'm really enjoying that. Excellent. But I certainly love 2D. I love fashion animation too. Favorite animation uh, animation studio, past or present, that you respect the most? Boy, I, I you gotta say Miyazaki. Yeah, he's like the uh, godfather of, of the business now. He had the, uh, the Alfred Hitchcock, the gold standard. Yeah, the, the the video where he announced his retirement was pretty heartbreaking. But uh, but I, I you know I felt happy for him because he seems to have a he seems to have a realization of a fulfilled life and uh, he was very positive about it. Oh man, if I did Spirited Away, I would die a happy happy person. <laughs> If I had done nothing but, you know, cheap uh, sleep commercials for, for the local market, it's how I spirited away amongst them. All right. A masterpiece. All right. Next question. Which do you prefer, Disney animation or Pixar? Well, you know, I like them both. I love, I think the most recent one I absolutely love was Tangled. Uh-huh. But the fan letters that I've written were to, I wrote a fan letter to uh, John Lasseter when I saw Toy Story because I, th- I thought that blew the doors off animation. And I I've only done it three times, wrote a fan letter. I wrote a fan letter to Pete Doctor when I saw Up because I, I told him, I said, the five, those five-minute montage of of Carl and Ellie, so the most moving animation I may have ever seen. I right. just thought it was miraculous. And then the third one was to Nick Park when he did the wrong trousers because I thought that is an absolute <laughs> perfection. And I was fortunate enough to get to spend a year and a half working at Aardman, although uh, Nick Park wasn't working on the project I was, but I got to meet him many times. And, wow. Uh, he was everything you hoped he would be. I think I already know the answer to, to this next one, but do you prefer uh, Studio Leica or Studio Ghibli? Yeah, I would say uh, Miyazaki, but I do I do love what they managed to do with uh, Paranorman, with somehow with that printing out a 3D printer, those heads, and do replacement animation with blur stuff and getting that kind of stuff that up to now was the, uh, the area that only like 2D could do. They managed to do it in stop motion, and I thought that was really cool. Awesome. So I, lo- I like what they're doing as well, but I, I mean, nobody can compare to Miyazaki to me. <laughs> Excellent. Now, do you prefer songs in animation or no songs? Yes. Whatever, the, whatever, the, <laughs> whatever the next part is, yes. I love animated movie musical. And I, guilty pleasure is I will confess to uh, listening to Disney film scores while I work all the time. And I love that song that they uh, they put in uh, Toy Story 3. I love that song. And I love the uh, songs in Tangled. Uh, uh, now, this this one I've been waiting to ask for a long time to someone who's been at DreamWorks. Uh, <laughs> who would win in a fight, Shrek or Poe from Kung Fu Panda? 
Well, I think Trek is huge. He's like <laughs> ten feet tall, so I think Trek would win. He does have he does have some skills. He does have you know Poe's got game now, but I think Trek's bigger. <laughs> Poe's got game now. Yeah, he definitely does. Awesome. All right. Well, that's the end of Catching Fire. That's uh. Thanks for all your awesome responses. <laughs> Normally, we'll ask questions like uh, you know, which of the directed video Disney sequels do you do you hate the most or or prefer? Or <laughs> we we ask the, we're the podcast that asks the hard questions. You know. Yeah. <laughs> well, that would be hard for me to say. I don't know that I've ever seen any of their directed video sequels. So I did one myself with uh, Joseph King of Dreams. That was a directed video sequel. Going into the book, so what made you want to write animating your career? I mean, you kind of went into it, but what's the story behind it? Well, in in 1990, uh, what was it? I guess it was 1989. I, I moved to London and I became a producer for Steven Spielberg on American Tale 2. And I realized that I had no background in run and helping to run a studio of that size of like 250 people mm-hmm. and managing a thing of that big. I had done production managing on smaller things, but never anything on that scale. And certainly not building a studio from the ground up, which fortunately we had a, a production manager called Cindy Woodburn, and she pretty much did all the logistics of uh, of getting that studio, which was great because I wouldn't have had a clue how to do it. So she she really uh, built it from the ground up in that way. And so for me, it was in managing, and I realized that I didn't have those skills. So I started to read books, and I read a lot of books. But there was no, there they tend to be written by one of two kinds of people, either CEOs of company like Jack Welch or Lee Iacopa, you know, these masters of the universe, uh, <laughs> which I certainly was not in and not in that league, or written by motivational people like uh, Tony Robbins and Zig Ziglar and uh, these kinds who are really good at what they do, but... Most of them have not been at a desk working a 40 week or 50 or 60 in the case of animation in decades. So they couldn't relate to what it was like to run a department because the world has changed. And I would say for now, I mean, if I go back five years, what it's like in the office now is very different than it was five years ago because the world is changing tremendously and and faster. Mm -hmm. So. That's what happened. I began to go on this odyssey to learn how to manage. And so after I did that, I I wrote this memo to the staff and I said, look, anybody who's interested in this, I'm going to do a talk of what I learned. And this was in, I think, March or February of 1993. And a lot of people went. We must have had like 150 or 200 people uh, from the studio went to, to that. And I said, boy, there's a real need for this. I said, someday I'm going to write a book about that. But at that time, I didn't have the experience or the life experience yes, to, to draw upon to do it. So during B-Movie, there was a moment where, and this we cut the story out of the book, you know, to make it shorter. But there was a moment that I was looking at the list of the artists on B-Movie, the crew list. And I noticed that out of over 200 people on the movie, there was only two people who started in in the business when I did. And I thought, Mike, I mean, what happened to everybody else? Where are they all? Where are all these other people? So I began to think outside DreamWorks to Disney and other places I had worked. And I realized that it was a very, very small number of people who were still in the business when I started 34 years ago. And I mentioned this to Jerry. I said, you know, Jerry, I think the truest test, truest test of talent is longevity. If you can build a career over a long time, you got something. Mm-hmm. And he said, he thought that was the only test of talent. And he said of all the things for him, the thing he was most, that he was proudest of was the fact that he's been able to build this career for uh, over three decades of stand-up comedy. 
from the 70s until now, almost four decades now. And I thought, I'm going to write a book that's going to help people build that career. Because I'm not, and I, you know, I've, I've gone to talks with people. I said, I'm not interested in helping you get a job because you can get a job and be gone next year. I want to help you build a career, a lifelong thing where you will grow and enjoy it as much as I do. I like going to work every bit as much now as I did the first day I got in the business. And I love movies every bit as much as I did when I was a film student at NYU. <laughs> and I wanted other people to be able to say that, share that. Awesome, awesome. And so you you, you just mentioned that you cut uh, you cut a story out, and then in the I think in the afterward you mentioned that at one time your your book was this huge thick volume. Um, what was going to go into the unabridged version? Well, there was lots of lots of. I, mean, I had I had one story that I think is uh, terrific of great leadership, and I'll tell the story now. Is we were making um, Balto in London. And uh, Steven Spielberg was there. And the days that he would come to the studio, it was electric in the studio, as you can imagine. And anyway, uh, we were going to go. We were on three floors or actually two floors separated by one. But so we were going to go to the lower floor on the way to the, the room. This, the, we passed a couple of young, like 12 year old kids who were kind of uh, work experience kids. These were kids from not great uh, schools and with great uh, means that, that Amblin had brought in to show them the animation thing and expose them to that to maybe be a career that they would otherwise never get a chance at. So in those, and as Stephen walked by, this was 1993 because Jurassic Park had just come out. He was, in fact, there for the premiere of Jurassic Park in, um, in London. And as he walked by, he saw that these kids had pinned up dinosaur drawings that they had done. And as we walked by, Stephen stopped. And he went to, the, he looked at the kids and he says, those are fantastic. Who did those? And the kids beamed with joy and they said, did. And he said, those are wonderful. He said, I wished I could do that. He said, I have no art. I'm not an artist. I always wanted to be an animator, but I, I, I can't do that. And these are terrific. And then when he was talking to the kids, he looked over and he saw on the desk that there was a camera there and the kids were very shy. And he said, do you mind if I take a picture with you? Now, those kids had brought that camera. <laughs> he did it the other way. He said, do you mind if I get a picture with you? And the kids and the kids came and he put his arms around him. He took off his baseball hat and he put it on the kids and he took a whole bunch of pictures with those kids. And, uh, you know, he told them, you know, keep at this. You've got a lot of talent and you can be an animator if that's what you want to do. The whole thing maybe took three or four minutes. But I, I would say to people, you know, others, I said, how many people do you think those kids told that story to? And my answer would be every single person they meet. <laughs> no kidding. And that builds equity in Steven Spielberg as a person, the goodwill that he engenders in the business. And in this world of, you know, 24-hour news, you don't hear bad stories about Steven Spielberg. And it's because he's a genuinely nice guy. And because he does stuff like that. And people don't know these things. Nobody knows that story because, uh, other than me and those two kids and the 20,000 people that told but I thought that's great leadership because a great leader never misses the opportunity to make a point, to, you know, to, uh, to build the morale of the people around them. He lifts them up. And when he leaves, they feel better and more charged that they can do anything than they did before. And that's great leadership. And, uh, you know, for space, we cut that out of the book, but that's an example of the story that was in there. Wow, that's a great story. 
that kind of goes along with one of the, the principles you talked about, which was attitude. Like throughout the book, I just kept feeling this attitude, attitude, attitude. It's everything. So one thing you talked about how, not necessarily how to change your attitude, but to have a good attitude, take opportunities when they come. So if you have a great attitude about a project or something, but people around you don't, like how do you recommend going about changing the team or, or bolstering them up? Is, is it possible? It's, it's very hard. You know, I, I, I think it's in the book, I have the, the quote from Lou Holtz who said, uh, I don't motivate people, I find motivated people. Yeah. And that really is kind of it. If the, if the guy, do, if the person doesn't have it in their DNA, you're not going to be able to bring it out. But most people have some of it in their DNA, but the top 10% are going to be passionately driven. And, you know, I was at uh, a school last on Friday night talking to him and I said, you'll know the guys who are going to make it because they're crazy about this. They love this. This is what they're born to do. They just got to do it. And I said, if you don't have that, it's going to be harder for you to sustain for 30 years or 20 years or 10 years. So I think you can elevate it a little, but if it's not there, if it's not in their DNA, they're probably not going to make it because, and it should be, if it's a chore for you to go see a movie, this probably isn't the business for you. Yeah. Yeah. And in your book, you described many uh, personality traits to avoid as an animator and that linked to attitude. Now, uh, most of our listeners and fans are age are kind of of the age is uh, eighteen to twenty four. Uh, what trait do you believe is the uh, what? Which of those negative traits do you believe is the would be the greatest downfall of young animator animator hopefuls today? Well, I, I talk about this in the book. I would mm-hmm. say procrastination. Procrastination. Single trait of procrastination will kill you in the long term. So if you've got that, and everybody has it to a degree. I mean, everybody, I, I do. There are times where it's like, oh, I just don't have, have it. And I mentioned in the book this this epiphany I had with Neil Simon. I went to that screenwriting talk with Neil Simon, who's a, you know a, one of the most prolific screenwriters and playwrights in the last you know 50 years. And he told this story with a bunch of writers there because one of them said, you know, do you have get writer's block? And he said, no. Well, you could have heard a pin drop when he said that because everybody wanted to go, what do you mean? You don't get writer's block? How do you get around that? And he said, I'll tell you what I do. He said, when I'm writing, he said, when I get towards the end of the day, I always stop just before I get to the end of something that I really want to do. If he said, I'm really into writing something, I will stop before I get there. And then... He said, I've got that in my head all night long that I can't wait to get it in the next morning to finish off that thing that I had from last night. I can't wait. And he said, that keeps me going. And he said, so that was his trick. And when anyway, when I heard him say that, I thought, oh, boy, I'm adding this to my uh, tricks. And I do that now is at the end of the day, when I'm getting close to like a drawing or a shot or something that I, I really am looking forward to doing, I will stop right before that so that all night and on the way to work, I'm thinking, I can't wait to work to get to that thing. And I do it to this day. I can tell you that I do it every single day. Yeah, good deal. It's great. It's a great trick. Fine. I, I owe it all time. You're sharing the wealth. Yeah. Okay. So pre- procrastination is a major killer, and I, I love how it's embodied in uh, these cartoons of the dog and the cat. I just want to say that <laughs> so brilliant. I love them. You know how that how that came about? No, tell us. Is that when I was a, a kid, I used to get Highlights Magazine. I loved Highlights Magazine, but I, actually I would only read it in the, in the doctor's office because we didn't have it at home. But you know, you know Highlights Magazine. Yeah. Oh yeah, I think I know where you're headed with this. <laughs> Well, they had uh, two characters, Goofus and Gallant, you know, and Goofus did everything wrong and Gallant did everything right. Mm-hmm. 
I said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to add that kid's type of thing, but I'm going to make it a cat and a dog. And the dog's going to be doing everything right, and the cat's going to do everything wrong. (laughs) And at the end of the book, the cat will kind of be redeemed a little bit. But he's, you know, he's he's the guy who does everything the wrong way. And so that's how that started. I said, oh, that, that, and once I had that idea, it was lots of fun because I knew I wanted to make a business book for artists. So I didn't want it to look boring. I want it to look fun to read and I want it to be fast reading. Mm-hmm. So I would break it up with um, little bits and I would tell lots of stories is that the stories would illustrate the point that I would want to make. Yeah. I think that's the best way to uh, teach. Yeah, the, the pictures, they sort of personified the the principles that you were talking about. And then also people, it made it that much more clear. You could imagine somebody, you know, going like this and being really upset about not getting a project. So it made it uh, a bit more real. So I like that. I was going to say, you know why I picked the cat and the dog? Because I had read an interview many years ago about Dr. Seuss. And, you know, Dr. Seuss to me is the uh, gold standard and the haiku of great children's writing. And he said that he deliberately created a world with all those creatures because he didn't want boys and girls. He said, because if a girl reads the book and the character's a boy, she'll say, that's not me. And and vice versa, if a girl is, I mean, a boy's reading it and it's a girl character. So he picked these creatures that anybody could relate to. So I said, I'm going to do the same thing and I'm going to use a dog and a cat because that could be anybody. (laughs) So this this may come come off uh, a bit blunt, but do you think that the majority of people in the industry are cats or dogs? Well, let's see. I uh, I, I, I can tell you, in my career, I have been very very fortunate because I work with the best of the best, mm-hmm. and uh, so my, in my career, it's mostly dogs. As I said, I was at a school last week, and I was playing, and there was a room full of uh, students, and I went to the the first girl, and I. Uh, the first student was sitting in the front and I said, were you the best artist in your school? And she said, I was homeschooled. And I go, oh, well, you're going to ruin my point. I said, so I go to the next. And I said, how about you? Were you the best person in your high school? The best artist? And she said, yes. And then I went to the next person and I said, were you the best person in your high school? The best artist in your high school? And she said, I was homeschooled. And I said, wait a minute, is there anybody in this, this room who wasn't homeschooled? Anyway, the next person wasn't homeschooled, and she said yes, that she was the best artist. And I said, my point is, everybody here in this room is probably the best artist in their high school, and now you're all here. And I said, what's going to happen is, if you go to DreamWorks and you go down the road, you'll get, this is the best artist in their class, in their college. And you've got a whole studio of people who are the best people in their college. And in some cases, it'll be, this is the best person in their country. Wow. That they're the best artist in France at doing this. So I deliberately, I, I did that A band, B band thing I mentioned in the book. But I deliberately made a career choice early on that I was going to do everything I could to be, to be with the best people. Because that's how I was going to learn the most. And so I clearly have been around mostly dogs. Okay. Good. Now, I had, I had a question about um, – I thought it was interesting what you said about surrounding your yourself with, with the best of the best. Do you feel like there's also value in uh, maybe associating with people that you can influence for good or maybe uplift or maybe teach, um, maybe in an academic situation where you work on a lot of group projects? 
Yeah, in fact, the, the whole the main thing I wanted to do in the book is I wanted it to be an affirmation. I wanted the person, the reader, and you'll be able to say if this worked better than I will, but I wanted the reader to come away from that book and say, I got a chance and I feel really good. I got it. I can do this. So I wanted it to be that. I didn't want it to be a downer because I'm actually not that way. It, 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 I don't think that way. I, I didn't want it to be critical in any way. Sure. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent. Well, awesome. Yeah, and just once again, I really love the cats and the dogs. I thought they were like really funny little cartoons. And it, it really, it, like Morgan said, really hit the point home. And now you, uh, let's see, you divided the book into two parts. Uh, and the second part is is how to succeed as, as a manager or a leader. Uh, now, drawing from your own experience in, um, in Miyazaki's recent statement about his retirement, he said that, uh, he was asked a question about uh, when did you feel when when were you most happy to direct uh, anime films? And he said, "I never once felt glad about being a director, but I felt glad about being an animator many times." Can you relate to that at all? Do you have any comments on that? Well, I made a decision. Well, in the book I took, I, there was a period in 1982 where I only worked for 10 weeks for the whole year. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, 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 that was a, a very bad time in my life, but actually was probably the most significant time in my life. I made the biggest change from the the, the, the thing. And what, what it did is it made me realize that I never, like, I felt like Scarlett O'Hara at the intermission, you know, as God is my witness, I will never be poor again, or I will never be this unemployed again. Whatever it takes, I'm going to do. So that doesn't happen. So that became my, uh, like, motto. I'm going to do whatever it takes. And in order to do that, I saw that the best, the top sliver of people always work. And I said, what do I got to do to get there? And the, one of the number one way is, you know, surround yourself with those people and steal every trick you can, absorb everything you can from them. What are some myths about the animation industry that you would like to correct for people who are coming in or animation hopefuls? Some myths. Okay, let's... Oh, I'll, I'll give you a myth. That you have to uh, wait till you're, like, inspired to work. And if you do that, you'll never do anything. You have to <laughs> you have to start stuff even when you're not feeling it. And maybe that will get you into it. And uh, But it's funny, I worked with... I, I went to school with the guy who I later met here at DreamWorks who was a writer. And he was working with another writer on this project. And Jeffrey said, after they launched him on the script, he goes, well, when will you have it? And he said, Jeffrey, he said, I cannot tell you when the inspiration train is going to come, but I can tell you that I will be here every day from nine to six waiting for it. And I thought, that's it. That's what it's about. It's like, <laughs> you know, working at it until it hits you. Yeah. So that that's part of it that you got to wait for it to hit you. And the, the real thing is, if you're really going to make it, you have to start in even when you're not feeling it and hope it will eventually come. So I would say that's a myth that the artiste must <laughs> wait for the inspiration. You can't do that. <laughs> you won't have anybody to work if you wait for that. Excellent. I had a I had a, a class with Frederick Park. I mean, he's kind of big in the animation. He, I think he was credited with uh, modeling a, a 3D face and animating it uh, for the first time. But he always uh, he always called it them animators, kind of in a very... Um, uh, oh, what do you call it? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, he kind. He was kind of mocking when people would, uh, people call themselves animators, <laughs> or when they were on camera. But yeah, like um, an artiste. An artiste, exactly. Now, um, this might not be a myth, myth, but something I learned in your book that I want to change is to think about um, what the team went through, or think about the milestones that the team reached when they made an animation film, because I think a lot of our 
listeners and fans would um, would easily pass by a certain animated film because it wasn't the, the latest from Disney or it wasn't the latest from Pixar or DreamWorks. And so something I something I learned that I'm gonna I'm gonna improve in my own life is is to not dismiss a movie just because uh, on the outside it doesn't look you know as amazing or, or epic or mind blowing as other films that I enjoyed in, in animation. But to but to really I wish I, I wish I could hear the story of the animation studio that did a project mm-hmm. for every animated movie that I saw. That's what I'm trying to get at. Because your book really really goes through some amazing stories for animated films that um, I haven't really given second thoughts since I watched them. And I won't, I won't, I won't go into specifics because... Yeah, I, I know because they're on my resume. <laughs> well, I don't want I, I I to be a critic. I think my share of ones that didn't work. I will be the first one to put that in. Most of the stuff you work isn't going to be Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King. I mean, that's a rarefied... Sure. You're lucky. Even... Even, uh, you know, Alfred Hitchcock has his movies that are not good, and Billy Wilder has his ones that are not good, and John Ford. I mean, John Ford was fired off Mr. Roberts. <laughs> so anything can happen. Sure, sure. And so I guess to our listeners out there, um, they should really pick up this book because it tells great stories about um, films that you might have forgotten about because of, because of age or whatever. I know what I'm going to change is is really try to kind of be in in the animator's shoes when I watch a film. Think about the techniques that they learned and, and maybe what they went through. I, I really wish there was kind of a hub to tell animation studio stories uh, from the professionals um, for every for every movie. It'd be like a second screen app, but like better, but like less distracting. <laughs> Excellent. So, so I have a question. So how? So obviously you need to have passion, you need to have drive and goals. But how do you feel about new people in this industry, um, or people who aren't even in the, in the industry yet, and they make it very obvious that they want to be a director? You know, they just you know they're kind of putting the cart before the horse. Yeah. Well, if, uh, I, uh, Nancy Beeman, who teaches at Sheridan, I, I sent her my book to read because I wanted to get her uh, her feelings on it. And she said one of the things she liked the most about the book was that it actually shows how these interconnected jobs that seem meaningless, that seem like dead ends, actually were the very ones that led me to direct. And so, as I I say in bold face, there are no unimportant jobs, in my opinion. Every one of them is necessary to make a movie. And that's the way you need to treat it. When you are on a job, that should be the most important job to you there is. And I'll tell you a story that uh, that Glenn Keane told me about when he started on the uh, Rescuers and was working in the Eric Larson Disney training program. This would have been, what, in the early, after Robin Hood, so 74, 75. I think the movie came out in 77. Mm-hmm. And Glenn said that he did this test, and he showed it to, to Eric, and Eric said, that's good. <laughs> now, then Glenn said, in the world of Eric Larson... Him saying that good is the equivalent in basketball of Bobby Knight throwing a chair across the floor, the, the room. <laughs> Eric is such a low-key <laughs> sweet guy that for him to say that's good, that's it means that's terrible. Or not terrible, but it, it's underwhelming to him. So Glenn wouldn't let that go, and he wouldn't let Eric go. He said, well, what do you mean? And Eric said, well, I mean, if that were me, and I were, it was a scene of uh, Bernard sweeping the floor and the UN with a whole bunch of live action feet going by. And the, the uh, Bernard was very small in the scene. You may remember the scene. And Eric said, you know, if that were my scene, I would think about Bernard. And Bernard, to him, if he's got a the floor at the UN, that is going to be the cleanest floor there is. And he said, so that's what, that's what that scene should read to me. 
And Glenn realized at that point that there, you know, essentially there are no unimportant scenes in a movie. Mm -hmm. Every scene is an opportunity to do something and, and add. And the people, and and that that was an epiphany for Glenn. And he changed uh, changed the way work forevermore from that. But I would say second-rate people will use those excuses. Oh, I didn't get the good scene. First-rate people know that every scene is a chance to do something great. And I, I, I cite in the book the scene from Roger Rabbit where it, the first one that James Baxter ever got, which was a close-up of a hand of the weasel turning the key in the dip mobile. Now, that's an could look like a nothing scene, but in fact, he made it into a, something terrific with wonderful overlap, and everybody was crowding around the video. <laughs> to watch it. And well, we all know where James Baxter is today. He would certainly be in that elite group of the best animators in the world. And the point is, James Baxter was always like that. He didn't arrive at that on Lion King. He was always that way. And because it's in his DNA. And so that's that's the last thing you need to know. That there are no unimportant jobs. And if you want to be a director, that's great. But if you're at in another role right now, Treat that role. Show them that you are a director caliber because you're not going to get the chance to direct if you can't do the job you're doing uh, now well. Yeah, very good. Now that makes me think of a section in your book, um, the last thought section about the Johnson principle, which I thought was really interesting. Um, in it, you described it as uh, a person is promoted to his level of unhappiness. You know, it shows the shows the cat being promoted to higher levels, and he he gets. Uh, more miserable as as he gets yeah. up higher, which I thought was a I thought was uh, I kind of had to think about that because um, it's it's kind of a funny thing that um, you know the notion that a not that a, a person is promoted up until he is in, in, incompetent at, at what you could ask him to do that he's promoted to his level of, of unhappiness and that was a little fuzzy to me. Could you elaborate a little more on the Johnson principle? Yeah, it's basically is some people love to animate. And if you get to be a head of character animation on a picture, you're not going to do much animating. You're going to be mostly critiquing other people's work and helping them and, and doing some things, but you're not going to be animating on a day-to-day basis. You're going to be supervising. And so suddenly, if you have this passion that I want to be, I love animating, you could be in a role that doesn't make you happy every day because you're not doing it anymore. You're, you're managing, you're helping all the people around you and you're elevating their work, but you yourself are not animating and that i that's i've seen you know james baxter every once in a while will supervise and then on another film he'll say i don't want to do that i just want to animate i just want to animate on this movie i don't want to be in charge of anybody i just want to do my scenes and of course he always ends up being in charge of people because people gravitate to him to show them their work and get critiques but that's what it means and i i, I saw it in my own father is that he was an engineer who worked on um, aircraft engines and he loved math he loved math he loved designing uh, air- aircraft engines and doing the, ma- the math of that. But he was promoted to a level where he was managing a team of other people who were doing the thing he loved. And, you know, I never heard him say, I never heard him talk about his job anymore after that. So after that t- time, he never did that. And wow. I, what a terrible thing that, I mean, he did it in order so his family would he'd make more money and be his family. And those are wonderful reasons. And I probably would not be here without him having made that sacrifice. But that's something that a lot of people don't think about, is that there may be a time where you will be promoted into a job that is not as much fun as the thing you were doing before. 
Okay, and, cool. And you have to question, is this really where I want to be? Now, that reminds me of an article I read about what it's like to work at Pixar, and they said that a lot of um, a lot of the people in the studio actually have side projects um, that are, you know, their own. Uh, I know a couple of animators are working on a video game for, for console. Um, I know some of them have their own, uh, like, T-shirt line or kind of a you know, fashion graphics line. And so that kind of that kind of makes me think about the Johnson principle, you know, that maybe they have these side projects so they can because maybe they were elevated to another position where they don't get to do the things that they used to love to do, and so they kind of have these pro- side projects to kind of fill that gap. Well, I, it it also could be, you know, after I directed B movie, I went home and I took time off and I painted my house, the outside of my house. And one day I was painting the outside of my house, and this guy came up to me and he said. Do you want help? I can help you. And I said, no, I, I don't want help. I want to paint the house. And he would never understand it. But as a director, I genuinely believe there's nothing in a film that's mine. It's such a collaborative medium. And everybody contributes so much that there isn't anything that's mine. It's always the group. It's always the collective. And that's why animation, to me, is so wonderful. But sometimes you want something that's yours, that you can say, I did this. And for me, it was painting my house. When I'm done, I go... I painted that house. And the book was kind of like that a little bit to me, too. But then I found out that without the uh, publisher and the, my friends who read the book, it, it would never be what it is. So it's always like like that. And, I, and that, that may be part of the reason they want to do these smaller things, because they want something that's just theirs. So what I thought was really interesting was just how fascinating your career has been. You started, you know, doing He-Man cartoons and then went to Disney and then you were over at Richard Williams Studio and then Amblination and DreamWorks. You've been all over the place. Um, and I, it got me thinking about Amblination because, I mean, they were around for just sort of, you know, a blip on the radar. They only did three movies, um, also being one of my favorites. So, so what vision did you have for the Cats film that you were in the process of starting? Oh boy, did we have some fantastic artwork by, uh, Luke Deschamarier and, um, Christian Chalavald, who did some, um, inspirational stuff. It was incredible. And Andrew, Andrew Lloyd Webber, who I really liked, I really liked working with him. And in some ways it was kind of sad that I didn't get to continue because I love musicals and boy, there's a guy who's got some great credits, but what happened is, uh, you know, DreamWorks came along and, and so that went off to Universal and I went to DreamWorks and then he said, I just want to do this as a shoot the play. But it was, it, it had a kind of a German expressionism at places. And also uh, during some of the songs, it was kind of German expressionist. So the art direction would kind of shift a little bit as the different cats came in with their songs. Like maybe Mr. Mistopheles, that was more German expressionistic. Another one would be a little bit more Turner-esque, say. And, and, uh, or Sergeant esque so it was uh, more British. So, uh, it was an absolutely gorgeous movie. I gotta say that. It, it was the way they had done artwork for London. I've never seen it in another movie. So it would have been somewhere that artwork exists. And it was love. Even Andrew Lloyd Webber was like, wow, I, I didn't, I never thought of it like this. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. Now, be, uh, before I launch into my next question, that's re- that, that actually is related. I'm going to ask an unrelated question. Uh, who do you think would win in a fight, He-Man or Lion-O from the Thundercats? Yeah, I'm not as familiar with uh, Thundercats, but I I do remember that when I was working <laughs> on He-Man, one of the storyboard artists with me, Warren Greenwood, would say, he said, I completely get Skeletor. He said... <laughs> If he said, if you saw a house with your face on it, wouldn't you want it? <laughs> he said, wouldn't you go, you know, I want that house. 
that's me. That's my face. And he said, so it's kind of weird that the good guys have the their headquarters is the face of the bad guy. And he and the other thing is that he would talk about with uh, Masters of the Universe. He said, you know, kids nowadays, they know outer space. They know how big the universe is. How are you possibly going to be the master of the universe of the, the whole thing? He said, you could be on same, some planet and go, hey, Skeletor, I'm going to do whatever I want. It's going to take you like 55 billion light years. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you want to come and try to rule this planet, by the time you get here, I'm dead. So I'm going to do whatever. <laughs> the universe is just too big to have a guy like that run this show. It's not like running the United States or something. <laughs> Y'all should have written that into an episode. Now, we, we just talked about Cats. Uh, I want to talk about another unfinished uh, animation masterpiece. Um, now, we've recently become really interested in Richard Williams because uh, we got to watch uh, yeah. the, per- the Persistence of Vision, the documentary on The Thief and the Cobbler. Now, uh, what was it like working with Richard Williams during uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Oh, it was fantastic. It was fantastic because I remember being at Disney when they, they brought us in and Dick showed the two-minute test that they had done to show the technique they were going to use for Roger Rabbit. And everybody's jaw went dropped. And went, I want to work on that. You know, everybody was working on, um, like, Oliver and Company, which aesthetically is not in the same league with what they were doing in Roger Rabbit in terms of, you know, the budget and, and what a breakthrough film it was. And so everybody's going, oh, I want to do that. And I loved working with with Dick. I thought it was fantastic to get to pick his brain because he's one of the certainly the greatest animators of my lifetime. And I I know his son uh, Alex and his daughter uh, Claire works here at DreamWorks. Oh wow! And they're really sweet too. All right. You know, uh, I got to talk to Don Bluth um, at, in Austin at a, a special screening of All Dogs Go to Heaven. And when I talked to him after the film, I asked him what he thought about, uh, you know, uh, the persistence of vision and, uh, the thief and the cobbler as the unfinished masterpiece. He made the comment, <laughs> he kind of rolled his eyes and he said, you know what? I don't think Williams would have ever finished that, that, that project. But what's your take on the thief and the cobbler and kind of the story of this, of this masterpiece project that, that never got to be? I think uh, I saw some of the early work because Dick showed it at Disney then, and it was just jaw-dropping, absolutely jaw-dropping. Unfortunately, it took so long to get that movie made. Unfortunately, technology caught up to him. And so those incredible tracking shots and things that he did by hand, meticulously by hand, which were absolute perfection, could be achieved by the computer with a fraction of the work. Mm-hmm. And so, and it, and it give very much the same kind of a look. And so I think by taking so long, the computer kind of happened and took away the thunder from the movie. I don't think it would have looked as shockingly innovative had it been finished, you know, in, in time. Because by then, Toy Story was out. Sure. And that was, uh, you know, that, that split the atom as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very sad watching the documentary and realizing that uh, um, it it didn't really flesh out to its full potential uh, in the time frame that Williams uh, would have wanted, I, I suppose. But, you know, you can, and, and as we know, you know, on the Netflix version, you know, the, it was later picked up by the by the other, I don't know what they call them, the bailout studio. And yeah, um, yeah. and now it's on Netflix. But, on company. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, you can still see the scenes, you know, when, uh, you know, when they're sliding through the palace and there's all that perspective work that was all hand-drawn, you know. I, I wonder if 
there's, you know, I always think about, you know, the the mom who has a bunch of bored kids in the house and she puts on the movie and not knowing what it is and they see it and you know they they don't they're not going to appreciate them appreciate those scenes for what they were, which I think is really sad and depressing. Well, that's it's also part of it is because the computer can achieve something similar with much less work, but there's there's I don't think there's ever been anything like what Dick achieved with the thief on on some of those scenes. That scene with the cards where the vizier is doing that and the cards are flying around. Oh, oh, yeah. oh it's jaw dropping. Oh, you, you got to see the documentary then because they do a frame by frame run through of that scene of zigzag juggling the cards. And you can see how meticulous all like all the falling patterns and and physics of every card was just hand drawn. It goes through every frame. And it's it's beautiful. And what about the War Machine? I mean, incredible. Yeah, yeah. So incredible that that moving that stuff all done by hand. And some of those the perspective things where the um, the cobbler is running through and you're seeing the floor animate and it mm-hmm. kind of goes backwards like this zoetrope type thing because yeah. the camera is moving at some pan and that's all all done by this guy Roy Nesbitt who we fortunately as soon as we heard that uh, Dick was retiring and stopping the movie we we got Roy Nesbitt and we brought him over to Emblemation and because uh, and Roy had worked with Kubrick on 2001 and was very close to Kubrick on that movie and so he was full of great stories about 2001 and he was the one who achieved those layouts that, you know, there's almost with, with no peer to that in hand-drawn animation. So going into sort of hand-drawn, and, and hand-drawn is, I don't know if I've it's seen its day, it seems. We don't see as many movies coming out. Um, what are your feelings about this transition and sort of the loss of the 2D art? Well, I, yeah, I tell students when I go, when I was working on uh, Prince of Egypt, I knew Toward the end of that movie, that I had to, this had to be my last 2D animated film if I was ever going to stay in the business. Because once I saw Toy Story, the writing was on the wall. Mm-hmm. Said this is uh, another thing entirely, and that uh, Toy Story is a masterpiece to me. And I said this is the way it's going to go. I got to get into that. And so that's why when um, it Prince of Egypt was ending, I was so helping out on this uh, producing on this uh, Joseph King of Dreams. Uh, direct-to-video thing, and I thought the end of Joseph, I got to get over the 3D somehow, and that's why I ended up on Hardman, mm-hmm. on uh, Taurus and the Hair, which was never completed, but I got to work there for a year and a half, and look at how that works, and they work in a very different way, so that was great fun, working with the Hardman people, because I have tremendous admiration for their work. Unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't translate as well to the American audience, mm-hmm. As, as it does to the international, but it doesn't make their work any less. They've done some wonderful things. Sure. I love that you were very perceptive and wise in that moment, seeing kind of the writing on the wall and then knowing where to pivot your career and to go from there, and then the rest is history. I, I'm doing that to this day right now, and I'm looking at the – I keep up – I actually have a database of the last two years of movies, a very wide release that's come out in the last two years because I'm noticing – I noticed when I started going to schools that the students hadn't seen any movies. <laughs> And I didn't, I couldn't believe it. I mean, movies, they hadn't seen anything. And I thought, boy, this is so different than when I went to school. We we all went to the movies all the time. And and I felt like I was behind when I went to movies. Everybody had seen so many more than I did. I had to play catch up. And now I go and I don't feel that thing where they want to see the old movies. And so I, because of that, I began to make a spreadsheet of every single movie that's come out. And I've discovered in the last two years out of over 200 movies, only one out of every four movies is seen by more people under 25 than over 25. And 
that says to me that the 14 to 22 year old audience, which was always the gold, uh, always the, what their target for movies, you know, they don't go to the movies anymore. Mm-hmm. And so the audience for movies, I think, is over 25 and under 14. And to, and that's why a movie to me like Pacific Ring comes out and doesn't do well. And it's because it's aiming at adolescent boys and they don't go to the movies anymore <laughs> or not in as high as numbers as they would have like in 1980. I mean, when I, when I saw Cowboys and Aliens and I said to my wife, I said, you know what? If this had been 1982 at the Chinese theater, there would have been a line around the block for this movie. And not just because, you know, a lot of people didn't like the movie, but at that point, you wouldn't have known. You would have just gone to see it. And it would have, a, a movie like that would have had every adolescent kid in the world there. They all would have been there. It would have been packed, and yet there's nobody there. And that happened with Pacific, uh, Pacific Rim as well. And so to me now, I actually think the future of uh, entertainment is actually on the cell phone, the smartphone. I think that, um, in the same way, maybe about 15 years ago, people were thinking high fidelity, high fidelity. It's going to go higher and higher quality sound. And if you had gone back to 1995 or so and said, you know what? The future of music is actually going to be lower quality than what? Because that's, <laughs> and that's what an MP3 player is. The fidelity of an MP3 file is not as good as a compact disc, but people were willing to give up that for the ease of being able to carry it with them and looking at it. And I think the same thing is happening with uh, movies. And so I think short content like stuff like your podcast is the future. So I'm actually very interested in moving into that world of small content short uh short films that would be for the smartphones and i think that market is enormous because maybe someone's got two or three tvs in their home everybody's got a cell phone with them yeah yeah now that's what i tell young people i I think that's where the market's going i'm hitching my star to now so where does that put the animated film the animation industry I think, um, well, this summer would be one of the things that would kind of refute my theory to a bit, because uh, what I was noticing was you weren't seeing any $300 million animated movies anymore. Outside of Toy Story 3, I could hardly think of any. And even the $200 million animated movie was, you weren't getting as many $200 million movies. Now, this summer, we had both, what, uh, Despicable Me 2 at like $350 million and uh, Toy Story 2, which is over $250 million. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Monsters University over 250 minutes. You had two movies that did gangbusters, but then you had some other ones that didn't do quite as well, like Turbo, which I absolutely love. It didn't do as well as uh, we had hoped. So I was noticing even the top big animated movies, the grosses were smaller than they had been like five years ago. Mm-hmm. They were shrinking. So I, I think the, the answer is I, I don't think the market... For the animated movies, you'll get more of them, but I don't think you'll see as many doing big numbers like 250 anymore or 200. It may be like uh, Crude's 185 or so. That's a a big hit. Wow, interesting. Now, real quick, how did you like Pacific Rim? Because I loved it. I have to say, I didn't see it. And it's it's a movie absolutely made for me because I love it. <laughs> but I didn't see it. I forget what I, you know, what I think I had guests staying with us at that time. And so I couldn't go to the movies. And then by the time um, everybody would laugh and I missed it. But I, I will definitely see it because it's, I, I like um, Guillermo del Toro. And I, I 
love monster movies. Yeah. It looks there's a lot of monsters. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I um I have every Godzilla Japanese Godzilla film uh, besides three of them, which I think you have to find in Japan. <laughs> but uh but yeah, I mean I was a huge fan of the genre, and so I I really liked it. My wife went in and and she came out uh saying I think that was too many special effects. I got dizzy. <laughs> that that could be the the case for some people. I remember going to this the Strand Theater in Hartford, Connecticut, when I was a kid. Every time a new Godzilla movie would come out, and so I saw. All of them in the movie theater: Godzilla versus the Thing, Godzilla versus King Kong. Or, oh yeah, I saw them all. All uh, Ghidra, five-headed monster. I saw them all in the theater as a kid. <laughs> awesome, well, awesome. Now, um, now talking about Prince of Egypt, um, how was it? Because we, when we did our podcast episode on Prince of Egypt, we talked about how it's it kind of stands out because it's hand drawn, but also it's kind of this. Um, it's kind of this like Ten Commandments, but animated version. And just as, as grand in scope, uh, I remember the story in, in, in your book about uh, Charlton Heston seeing uh, seeing it. And what was it? What was it like to to help to to be director on a film that was so like biblical and so sacred in nature to to, to so many people? Was there a, was there a real challenge there? Yeah, there was because it's not as we used to say. We don't own this story. This isn't The Little Mermaid. This isn't Beauty and the Beast. We can't do a version of it that's ours. We don't own it. This is owned by people all over the world. And so we had to respect that. And we couldn't change uh, things that happen in the, the story, in the Bible. So we said this inherently has a problem for a movie is essentially halfway through the movie. God is going to tell Moses, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to... I'm going to do this and I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to do this and I'm going to, and it's, and you know, as a storyteller, that's horrible. It's like, you mean you're going to give away the whole movie and tell exactly what's going to happen? That's terrible. So because the movie's familiar and many people know that aspect of it, we needed another way to keep people in the story. And that was the brother story. We felt like that was a, a sliver of something that could, that we could bring to the story and keep the conflict alive so that even if you knew, that God was going to harden Pharaoh's heart after each of the plagues. You didn't know what was going to happen between Moses and Ramesses. And that was going to be our story, that the two brothers and how they go apart. And that was going to be the emotional aspect as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm very interested, you know, once you've finished asking me questions, I got a, a couple for you guys. Because I'm really interested in particular, like, with Morgan, because... She's the other half of the demographic that I'm hoping to reach with the book. And that's people who aren't necessarily going to be an animator, but are interested in working on the production end, in the leadership end of a creative field. And how helpful did you think the book was? Yeah, I mean, I as I was reading it, I thought, because I always had that as a goal, I guess, thinking like, well, I'm not an artist, but I'd still love to work for a studio. Exactly. I think it'd be incredible to get into marketing or even, you know, production management, whatever. And um, so this, it helped me understand kind of the mechanics of maybe how a studio works. And then I think it absolutely applies because you're working with creatives and how to manage them and, and go from there. So I liked it a lot. I thought it helped me put that back into perspective. It, uh, one of my, I think one of my favorite things and maybe the most important thing to me that's in the book is the story, the story that I tell about my mother taught me, which is put the phone down and pay attention to the people you're with. Mm -hmm. That probably is the single most important thing I've tried to do with leadership is that when I'm with someone, they're there, I'm there 
for them. I'm not going to have the phone there. I'm not going to answer the phone. I'm going to hit like I just did before. I'm going to put send the calls away. I'm going to be there for you. And I thought that's that's another thing about great leadership is focusing on them. And the really good people I, I mentioned, like David Geffen, and that the people who told me that Bill Clinton is exactly that way. When you're in the room with Bill Clinton, you are the only one in the room with Bill Clinton. Huh. So that's a question I have. What how, For people who aren't creative but they want to get into the industry, it seems like a lot of the people – um, start creative and then branch out. I mean, how do you do it the other way? I guess not the other way around. I'm not trying to be an animator, but how do you get in? Because it seems like those ro- those roles aren't posted or hard to find. Well, yeah. there, there. I mean, I I don't believe that that many people are aren't creative at all. <laughs> and you know, I talk about that finding the equivalent thing and in, in my method managing thing, finding the equivalent so that you can have a sense of what. Um, what it's like to work on that field because there is there will be an equivalent yeah. of, of whatever you're doing and but let's say in animation because I'm, I'm most familiar with that there are many production jobs in that and those jobs eventually lead to become you know you start off as a production assistant and then you become a production coordinator and then you become you may move up to a bigger production coordinator and then like you start production manage and then you become the associate producer and then you may get to produce. Mm-hmm. But that's the, the track and they're all, they're not jobs that you necessarily have to be an artist to do, but that you're working with creative people all the time. And I'm, I'm sure in any field, they have that same type of uh, path. They just, they may have different names, but they have those. Yeah, definitely. Well, last words on your book. Um, I'm definitely going to pass it around in my visual art studio on campus and um and definitely uh no you're gonna have them buy it oh yeah we're gonna have <laughs> well, i'm gonna pass it around to uh to my my other representative that got um that got voted it's actually alex parker uh who writes for the site morgan i'm gonna definitely promote the book i we have a youtube video in the works and uh articles on the site and so we're really excited about this book and just uh thanks again for reaching out to us and and for writing this book because it was super informative i love that it was written in the context of your own career and so it really uh brought a lot of the points home because uh you know that's the career that i want i want to be in the animation industry and so uh very very helpful resource yeah and i also tried to get a sense of humility in it that that i'm not mr know-it-all who knows all this stuff in fact you as you read it you i i caught to the fact that i failed many 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 times (laughs) that most of the lessons were because i did it wrong and had to learn how to do it right oh well, i was just gonna ask one last question so what's in the future for you what are the projects you're most excited about if you can talk about them well right now i'm i'm gonna help out on this um what they call a DreamWorks location-based. They're getting more into theme parks kind of stuff. And uh, I'm going to help out on this project. And I hope I get to stay on this kind of thing for a long time because I absolutely love the theme park world. In fact, um, last after I finished uh, teaching at that school in Florida, on Sunday I went to Disney World and went on the new Fantasyland and saw all that stuff. And on Monday I went to uh, SeaWorld and saw the rides there and went to the behind-the-scenes tour of the Penguins. And then on Tuesday, before I went to the airport, I went to Universal because I wanted to see the Simpson uh, land that they've got and the Transformer ride. And the, I wanted to go on the Minion ride and all those because I love theme parks. So I'm I'm hoping to do I'm just going to start on this thing uh, like a Monday and knock on wood I'll do well enough to get to stay in that world because I love it and it's something I've never done before it's like 3D movies so yeah. I don't know do you guys like the arts? Oh them. I love yeah we love them we're we're always talking and 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 joking about uh Disney World and I've never been to Orlando but I have gone to uh, uh Anaheim and and um see go to Disneyland and then Disney World 
Um, you know, it, it was it was kind of an epiphany when it dawned on me this summer when I went to Disney World that they they do storyboards for theme park rides. Yep. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it's gonna. That, that's part of the fun of this thing. We're gonna do this thing, and I'm get to get to work in a way that I'm because you don't need to do a storyboard like you do for an animated movie. It doesn't have to be as detailed. It needs to get the story across, and and so. It's, it's going to be so new and fun to me. I've never done it, and that's exciting. I love that challenge. I, I can't wait to begin. And then I'm also um, helping out on this. Uh, they're going to do a, a film, a little film for the military about to, to show to schools to um, teach kids about the soldiers returning home and, and um, dispelling some of the myths that people have about veterans. Wow. For Veterans Day. And for that, to me, that's kind of like, the good, the good karma thing to do for these <laughs> all the, the soldiers that are coming back. Give right. a minute. I want to find something to show you. I can find. It. Luckily, I'm here at work. <laughs> I can see if I have this, but I want to see if I can find. If not, ah, perfect. This is the begin. I don't know. Can you see this? This is the beginning of DreamWorks. This is the entire. Wow. All of DreamWorks. Oh, wow. In that photo. And I don't know, there's like 30 people in there. So that was uh, spring 1995. I was just saying that was the picture, the, the dream begins. Uh-huh. I can send the dream this. begins. I'm, I'm uh, let's see, I, I, I am uh, re- relatively camera shy. So I'm, I'm way, <laughs> I'm way back here. Is, is, I think Brenda Chapman is right there. Uh-huh. Is that Brent? No, 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 I'm sorry. The other way. Brenda's here. That's ah, Brenda. So that looks like her. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah that's Brenda. Check out that '90s hair. Oh, I see you hidden. Yeah, I'm way back there. That's, that was pre-Lasik days when I used to wear glasses. <laughs> but I thought wow, you might so... see that because that was the beginning of the whole thing. And to uh, to have been at DreamWorks for these last 18 years and watched the changes, and I'm incredibly excited about the new directions the companies are going. And that uh, you know, I remember one of the days it was 30 people like that, and Jeffrey was in the uh, editing room all the time with us, helping us on Prince of Egypt. And now, we, you know, it's the company's so much bigger; he never has time to do that. He has a completely different role. But uh, so it was fun to have been there at the beginning and get to to bond with uh, with him and all the other people in that way. And the great fact is, there's many, and it's a credit to the company. There's many, many people in that photo that are still there today. And that says something. Wow. Eighteen years later, that you would still have all these people still there together. Yeah, I've um, you know read some things about DreamWorks, and speak, people speak very, very highly of it and of the culture and the collaboration. I know people think Pixar is the place to be, but I really think you know DreamWorks, you know, has what people are looking for. I I I I love the Pixar work, and I respect them tremendously. And but I I love working for Jeffrey. I remember on on B movie, I would do interviews, and and I would say that uh, I that uh, I think Jeffrey. And I genuinely believe this. I said I think Jeffrey is the best executive in Hollywood. And they said, well, you're saying that because you work with Jeffrey. And I said, you've actually got that backwards. I said I work for Jeffrey because I say that, and I genuinely mean it. I I think he's the Irving Thalberg. Of today, like what other executive, what other chief executive officer of a studio in Hollywood would you see like it's in the hallway and he would say hello to you and you could and he will he will answer every email. If you call him up, he will answer you. I remember one time I was in a meeting with Tim Johnson, who's the creator of that Johnson principle. And and we were talking about this very thing. And Tim said, you know, he said, I'll bet that if we called Jeffrey right now before this meeting was over, he'd call us back. (laughs) And that's the follow through he has. And that's what makes him exceptional. Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and we appreciate you reaching out to us. 
Um, I, I'm, I'm sure I, I know all our listeners are going to deeply appreciate this interview because we have a lot of people who are excited about uh, breaking in and staying into the animation <laughs> industry. And that's exactly what your, what your book covers. So, um, thanks again. That's exactly why I reached out to you guys. Cause I would see your podcast on animated views and then I would go to your website and I would say, these are exactly the kind of people who who would uh, read it. And then when I, I read your bios and saw, oh, Morgan is actually half of ex- of the group. That's why I was glad to have you both. Look, there you go. Hold on for a second. I want to show you something. This is the binder, actually, that started the book. I don't know if you can... Okay, yeah. A little bit. Oh, wow. This is the binder that, that started the book. 94. Yeah, 94. And this was... this. Was, uh, let me see if I can find the, the actual memo. Yeah. And see, it's a, it's a British. You can tell because in England, they don't have three hole. They have two hole punch notebooks. Wow. How do they? So they, they only do two. So this is the, um, this is the original memo that I wrote. If you can see that emblemation yeah, thing. Emblemation. Yeah. And so it's, uh, can you read the date? February 21st. 94. Yeah. 1994. Yeah. So that's, uh, and that was the beginning. That was an early drawing of the cat that changed as I, uh, Got better. So this was actually the memo that I sent to people, and this was the itinerary of the uh, first, the first day. Wow. The the two day. It was a two day talk that I was going to do and go over these things. So that was the beginning of the the book back in. But as I said, I I wasn't experienced enough, and I needed more life experience. To to, that was the end of the book. This has been the culmination of quite a bit. Quite a career. Absolutely. And uh, it's it's been wonderful. As I said, really, I, I love going to work as much now as I did the very first day I started. And if, you know, I, I like to pro- proselytize it and get people to go in because it's it's a wonderful way to make a living. And the people in it, in animation, are fantastic. You'll see that. The more you uh, interview people, you'll see that they're fantastic. Awesome. You can get a better bunch of people. Great. Well, Steve, I think that's a good note to end on. Um, we'll go ahead and let you go, and me and Morgan will stay on to do kind of official stuff for the, the right. recording. But thank you again so much. You know, I feel like I've been talking to a friend for, for a couple hours. So uh, thanks thanks for being so great to reach out to us and, and for doing the interview. My pleasure. Thanks for all your kind words. That was seriously an awesome interview. You know, when I, when I, when I pick up uh, kind of like animation self-help or like career or like you know books like how to win friends and hypnotize people or whatever it's called um always a little i'm always a little apprehensive because i'm afraid of being of self-critiquing myself on on how i'm headed in my career but with this uh book it was very upbeat very uh, like he said it was an affirmation and it was very positive and so i highly recommend this book to anyone who wants to get into the creative industries and make it big and stay in that industry with a job. But also, um, this is a great kind of self-help, you know, motivational book just because of the, uh, the principles he, he, he goes over in the book are, uh, are very general to a lot of industries. It's in the context of his animation career, which is awesome. Um, but really, uh, any of our listeners who are interested in the creative industry should read this book. Uh, it's very helpful, very informative. 
Yeah, I definitely think someone as as me, someone who's not in animation and is working in a different industry, it's still applied because I'm passionate about animation. So the stories and the principles were relating to something I'm already passionate about. I loved hearing these stories and reading these stories about uh, the struggles that he went through or the ups and downs or switching studios because that's what I care about. And so it helped me kind of absorb those and then I can take it into my own career. So even if you're not an animator, if you're a fan of animation, this is definitely the book for you. We want to thank Steve for allowing us to interview him and um, read his book, and I really wish him the best. <laughs> so before we go, just make sure to check out the rotoscopers.com. That's where you can find all of the links to our Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, YouTube, everything. Just go there. That's your hub, and it will take you uh, to the places you need to go, not to mention it's a great place for animation news and opinions. Yeah, so the rotoscopers.com, check it out. We have a, a very enthusiastic, excited uh, talented and diverse uh, group of writers for the site, and they are just incredible. Uh, on the site, you'll find reviews, you'll find the latest animation news, and uh, you'll even, in the opinion corner, uh, that's my uh, my favorite territory to write it in the site, <laughs> because, because I'm me. Um, you'll find all sorts of cool opinion pieces, uh, critiques, and reviews. And so, uh, you know, you'll find stuff on Pixar, you'll, you'll find stuff on, uh, you know, Miyazaki and, and anime, what's on TV, but you'll also find, uh, I, I like the recent, uh, Forgotten Gems of Animation series that's, um, that's on the site. So the site's super fun. Um, check it out if you want, uh, if you want to stay up on all things animation and animation related. So thanks for listening, guys. Until our next episode, which is going to be The Incredibles. It's one that's one of our most requested movies. So I am always beneath you, but nothing is beneath me. Well, folks, another great episode under our belt, under our utility belts. Uh, until next time, we, we are, are the, the Rotoscopers. You know those, uh, if you go to AMC theaters, you know, they have a thing, turn off your cell phones. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I worked on the one for Madagascar 2, for, well, for B-Movie, for, I don't know, I, I must have done three or four of them. How long in advance do you plan those, and how long does it take the whole team to do it? Because it's only two or three minutes, right? Maybe. Okay, you're seeing video on this call because Chelsea Robinson group is the call. Find out all about it. Okay, I need to know that. Uh, it, they're remarkably fast. It always seems like they happen right near the end, right when the movie's going to come out. Because normally they wait till the animators are wrapped so they can use the animators from the movie to do the spot. Mm-hmm. So that happens a lot. Gotcha. Oh, wow. So Someone actually read my bio? <laughs> <laughs> yes, because, oh, that, are you kidding? That's part of doing your homework. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I always uh, I always do that. Great. I wonder how much it says, how much it talks about Star Wars in it. <laughs> one, 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 one trend in our podcast is that I always make a Star Wars reference, and I kind of get self-conscious about it. But, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be a Star Wars nerd.
Um, but I, I think there's something about in my bio. Well, I think if you went to, to mine, I would probably somewhere mention Hitchcock, Hitchcock okay. or Disney. So I would be as guilty as you, but just in a different thing. Very is that a bad thing? No. Hitch, Hitchcock is not a bad something? thing. No, it's not. It, being a nerd is just you, you love something. You love a certain thing with a lot of intensity, you know? I think you could really love fantasy football and be a nerd, you know? I think, I think it's just a kind of a relative thing. Maybe. I'll, I'll tell you something that I learned when I was about 35. I was talking to this woman who was, you know, very beautiful. And she was, she was, um, she was about 37 or something. And, and she said to me, you know, I was thinking about how I was, how I would have definitely been a nerd in, in high school. And, and she said, the fact is, she said, the nerds are all the interesting people later in life. Because what makes you a nerd is that you have a passion for something, and so you can't be bothered in high school with all this frivolous stuff that everybody else is doing because you're too focused. <laughs> and if you, and she's right. I mean, I'll bet Jim Henson was a nerd in high school. It's like this guy's playing with puppets, or, yeah. or, or Charles Schultz, you know, with his peanut, with his comic strips, or George Lucas with his movies and cars. All these people who are the most interesting people are certainly Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs. They're, I mean, Bill Gates, are, they're all going to be nerds in high school because they have passion for one thing. And, but, and that's also what makes them uh, interesting later in life when maybe being uh, the guy at the pep rally isn't the most important <laughs> thing anymore. Thank you. Okay. We'll let you go to your night. Yes, and, and you too, and say hello to, I'm sorry I never get to meet Chelsea, because tell her I am actually a kindred spirit in the, the world of the, the animated musical. I love them. They're doing one here. Yeah. Mumbai Musical? Uh, Mumbai, yeah. Mumbai Musical, that's correct, yeah. And awesome. uh, I just saw Stephen Schwartz in the hallway the other day, and uh, I was asking him, because another one of my passions is magic. I love magic. And I said, are you still doing the Houdini musical? And he said, yes. He said, we're still doing it. We're, gonna, we're trying to get it going. Hugh Jackman's going to be Houdini. Oh, cool. And wow. so uh, that, I said, well, I'm going to be there when you're done with that. Because I actually remember when Stephen Schwartz came back from holiday at his at his friends in Hawaii and had this book called Wicked and was going to get the rights to it. <laughs> and he was talking about how he was going to do that. Wow. <laughs> and there you go. Very cool. Well, maybe one day we'll uh, we'll bring Chelsea on. We'll do another interview. <laughs> Yeah, if we ever do like a what do you you know what songs do you like most uh, you know we'll we'll definitely include you <laughs> if you'll spare the time and Chelsea would love to yeah. talk to you I mean yeah definitely yeah I was watching that uh, light parade they have on the uh, the Bay Lake at Disney World by the Contemporary I was watching it and naming all. That's uh, Poor Unfortunate Souls that's Whale of a Tail <laughs> Under the Sea that's um, that's Under the Sea that's Kiss the Girl I, I was good I knew every single song it's like second it started i know what that is awesome. i love those things awesome. for our, our final project we uh last year in studio we were building these life-size sculptures and we did a lot of long late nights and there was one night when someone had a disney playlist on their spotify or on on uh -huh. pandora and they were all 50 of us were were singing our heart outs uh when it came down to um well, what was it what um the Donny Osmond song from Mulan. I'll make a man out of you. Yeah, I'll make a man oh. out of you. Oh, yeah. We all sang that at the top of our lungs. We just dropped what we were doing. We just joined it. Yeah, that 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 song is uh, is is great. And the lyrics are really good. I love that song. And I, you know what I'm saying? I love Meg's song in Hercules. Yes. Yeah. I'm not in love or whatever the song yeah, is. Yeah, I won't say I'm in love. Yeah, I love that song. 
I love this song. It's really good. Awesome, Steve. We're going to have a part two, so get ready in a few months. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm there.